0: Hello, folks. Wow, is it really August? Time sure flies, but not to worry, because that just means that there's always something new to listen to in the chilling entertainment family of shows. Don't miss the latest episode of Horror Hill with Eric Peabody, with new episodes premiering Thursdays. And, of course, don't forget Fear from the Heartland with Paul J. McSorley, Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and Drew Blood's Dark Tales. You can find them all at simplyscarypodcast.com, on YouTube, or your favorite podcasting service. Or be sure to visit the Chilling dot com website and become a patron and hear extended episodes from our vast audio archive. Slow down just a little bit and join us for a scary good time. We're waiting for you. <laughs> 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 Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyrie, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome, dear listeners, to Season 13, Episode 15. I'm your host, Otis Gyrie, and in this episode, I'll be performing four tales to terrify you, courtesy of author Dale Thompson. Tonight, we'll hear stories of didactic diseases, worrying warfare, despicable divorces, demonic determination. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version, of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin. <laughs>
1: Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download
2: the app today. You can live out your Chef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.
0: Point of view is everything. In any conflict, major conflict, the winner will see the event in much different light than the loser, and everyone wants to be the victor in their own story. Take, for instance, the teller of this tale who is smaller than you might expect, but it's got big plans. Without further ado, I present to you, Zombie. What am I? Who am I? What's my purpose? Where'd I come from? Where am I now? Why do I not have memories? What is this place? I can't remember. Should I remember, or am I something newly born? Born of what, from what? It's dark. I know dark, so I must know light. I understand opposites. I recognize life and death, so I am in limbo, drifting, floating in a purgatorial region? Is this an interminable existence? I need to understand these existential questions. It seems dreary, but what am I comparing this to? It is somewhat miasmal. This appears severe, but not cruel. I get the feeling I'm deep somewhere. There's oppressive weight over me. I don't know what I am to feel it, but I know I'm not feeling like myself. I feel hijacked, like... Something is forming inside of me that I have no control over. An unbreakable tubular scaffolding is formed within and around my muscles. Self-propagation and dispersal are thoughts I'm unfamiliar with. My bones ache as if crumbling beneath the outer layer. I must find someplace warmer to go. I'll migrate following what I assume are heat waves... I seem to be guided by sensors. I'm ascending to a heat source. I'm an ant. I remember now. I'm an ant. I must sink my jaws into something to eat. I'm feeling weak. I'm growing weaker. Here, here, I got it. I'm fainting. I must hold on. Where am I? I remember I'm an ant. I must have fainted. My body feels shriveled like a corpse. I feel tremendous pressure on the base of my head. I'm cringing with an eerie agitation, not knowing what's happening. I seem to have lost control, become immobile, paralyzed, a stiffness with no real awareness of myself. I'm having thoughts as if something is thinking through me. I hear a distant pop. And now I jettison through the air. I see my body below, a hole in my head. I've exploded grotesquely out of my own body. What am I? Have I just experienced incubation? I've been expelled, thrust out beyond the limits of my physical form. Was I dead long before I realized it? I hope this isn't contagious. I didn't know I was sick. Something dug its way into my brain, burrowed itself deep within, and like some sort of alien, has used me to launch itself out into space. I don't know where I'm traveling now. I'm still spinning, somewhat, and moving at a high rate of speed. I was conscious. I was experiencing behavioral manipulations, but I assumed it was something like a chronic cold. Now, there's nothing left of who and what I was. I now realize I was being controlled to find a more humid area, to attach myself to a leaf, and assume an abdomen-up death pose, and wait for this alien intruder to wiggle its way through my entire frame, and grow inside of me until my body, as host, could no longer contain it. I'm drifting down now. I have a horrible desire to feed and to sleep. Down, 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 losing speed and altitude. I have no control of velocity or descent. I see people. It looks like the wind is carrying me toward a group of humans. I'm on a trajectory straight for one of them. I feel a prickling throughout whatever I am, like something rising from dormancy. I'm gonna crash into the man's face. It's impossible to avoid. I'm unable to even close my eyes. See it coming closer and closer, unavoidable, impotent to reroute. Darkness engulfing me. Outer darkness of moist membranes, and I'm now sliding, struggling in my mind. But whatever I was on the outside, would not react or be influenced by my will. There's a tremendous amount of air, inhaling, exhaling and I seem to be stuck to a wall at the moment. Now that I think about it, I know where I am. I see a hint of light above me, but I'm lodged deep into this sticky cavity. I really need to feed. Have I become a virulent pathogen? Am I no longer an ant? I have no tendencies of an ant. I no longer seek adventure. Exploring is out of the question. I have no desire to actively forage. I'm not interested in building or burrowing or digging or even gathering. I have no sense of community. I feel a bit self-absorbed, narcissistic, maybe selfish is a better word. Yes, I feel like a loner who seeks self-gratification. I've become practically shameless, self-centered, even conceited. What am I exactly? This is disturbing behavior for an ant, but I'm no longer an ant. I witnessed my own demise. I'm afraid to admit what I've become. I should remain torpid. I should not do anything at all. Resist the temptation. Suppress the desires that are rising up in me. I miss the old me with my bulbous head, six legs with three joints and my elbowed antennas, which I could smell with. I had powerful jaws. I don't even know what I am or what I have now, but not being an ant is disturbing. If I could find another one like me, I could possibly define myself, but as far as I know, I'm the only one lodged in this mucus passage. Something strange is happening to me again. This must be the activation stage. I feel pressure, a lot of pressure. It's pushing and tugging and wiggling inside of me. I'm unable to find relief. Something's taking place. I'm feeling the fainting sensation again. I must get away. I'm looking at another me. Whatever just happened is over. I feel no excruciating pain or discomfort, but I am looking at myself. I'm there, a wiggling, mindless parasite of some sort. We're communicating, but I don't know how this is possible. We've decided to move from our location. The other me is helping me dislodge, and I do so. My instinct is to go upward, and the other me agrees. We both agree that other times we would have traveled south into the lungs or into the stomach, but we must make our way into the bloodstream and swim to the brain. Only in the brain can we gain back control and true mobility go through the olfactory nerve connected to the sense of smell. As horrifying as this sounds, well, we've agreed to take over the host body. We've gone into survival mode. Together, we were absorbed into the bloodstream and then swam through the blue veins to induce him. Strange thoughts, riveting ideas, positioning ourselves more awful than the deepest black It wasn't complicated, but indescribably grievous, for we instantly began to feed on the tender, fat brain matter. The host knew nothing of this, or he would have been screaming out with blended notes of anguish and groaning like thunder. Yet there was no piercing cry or painful shriek. We were, obviously, feeding unnoticed without turmoil or disruption. Our intention was strictly survival, and without observation, the two of us multiplied. I felt like a father. if these were not my children, not my offspring, for they were me, exact replicas. We needed not to learn or to be educated. We simply needed to exist. And what we were drove us, commissioned us, compelled us. We were the chosen ones, expanding our territory, taking more ground like a vast, insurmountable army without resistance. Now we'd rob the ingenuity of our host's intellect and incorporate it within ourselves, and we would thrive from it. Having taken over the mind of our host, we would grow stronger and more formidable, controlling him to do our bidding. Our host metabolism was changing as we secreted castrating hormones into his brain. We had no need for communication, no reason to dialogue. For we were one thought. We didn't know what the host was thinking. Soon, his heart and his desires would be what we dictated. In order for us to live, our host must survive. Our self-preservation is our greatest commitment. We don't need his permission or cooperation. Nothing is demanded of us. We're the predators, the decomposers. We'd always existed undetected, especially by early man. From regions outside of this world, we've always been plentiful. We were travelers of space and time, carried inside those who were great and even the least of these. In the beginning, we were called from our hibernation into our multifarious positions, and new beginnings created from the ponds of Eden, We dripped like dew from the tree of life. We were spreading, and the greater our numbers, the more of his memory we would become. We would erase his identity and build ourselves, scaffolding our way to where his deepest, darkest secrets were stored. We would own these. We would soon be a walking corpse. Once we had complete control, we could then begin the transfer of some of us to other hosts, infesting everyone we came into contact with within the nucleic acid, we were undoing what has been encoded. He's soaked and saturated with us. We are becoming a wall of prokaryotic assemblage, working against every primordial opposition for our gain. More devastating than a swarm of locusts to seedling cotton, we thronged the head, and his accumulation of knowledge made us richer than gold. We experienced no greed, no contention, Although innumerable, we were united in our own etiquette. Regardless of his best efforts to save himself, it was unfavorable. We were his undiagnosed malignity. We were significantly more potent than first suspected, and soon our host would let out a derisive howl, for which he would be told we were fatal. Infestation was protracted, but we didn't allow the length of time to deter us. We were so supernaturally high. It was amazing. We carried on. Industrial in unspeakable satisfaction, we'd weathered it all without impediments. It belonged to us. We indulged on what made us fat. The great malady had come for our host, and he sought medical attention, but it was far too late. "'Dire' were the words we now understood from his doctor ringing in our new sense of human hearing. We were causing him mental friction, exposing him to genetic mutations. We'd harnessed his nervous system and swelled our territory like long fingers, probing our way as we ate of his flesh. We were his contagion and sought transference to pass along to other hosts this gift of immortality." Unstoppable, the comedy of speculative logic and preparatory functions were all blocked by our advancement. The medical world, in which our host had now entrusted his care, would quickly realize we were malignant in intent and could not be driven out through discussion or conventional means. Uh, we don't negotiate terms, we make no treaties or sign any deals. Our capabilities are endless. We always live up to our appellation. Our name is synonymous with pandemic, apocalypse, mortality. We are legion. We are many. Yet united as one. When our host becomes as ravenous for flesh as we are, he will not be able to resist. He may fight the initial urge, but he'll give in. Resistance is futile. We're in too deep. When his starvation becomes unbearable and he needs raw meat, even his children will not be safe. He'll show no prejudice or discrimination. Everyone will be fair game. He'll be void of sympathy and his apathy will vanish as if he'd never known mercy. The lines of his morality, right and wrong, good and evil, truth and lie will be erased. ...and he will have no conscience to deal with. Unless he eats, he will feel an overwhelming weight upon him... ...as if he is imprisoned, caged, chained to the hunger. He'll want to break free, and he will. He'll crave living flesh, fresh blood, and his lust for it all insatiable. He'll experience exquisite pleasure from this, but never be satisfied and his despicable dissatisfaction will be his motivation, his determination to carry on. This is the evolutionary convergence, the totality of chromosome distribution and metabolic operations in praise of all of us cryptic microbes, parasites and amoebas craving the nucleus for the eventual destruction of what makes him human. We didn't count the days, for we did not rest time came when full functionality was achieved and we were the man. We had tapped into his central nervous system, diseased his blood, and melded ourselves into his DNA. We were successful in repeatedly replicating and inserting transposons by reshuffling and controlling the language of the genome. Our focus was certainly on our propagation and self-preservation. Yet, We were fully aware after integrating that unless a human body is fully regenerated, it will cease to function. As a corporate entity, we were being forced to mutate and change our characteristics to match the decline of the human frame we'd taken over. From a spore, to an amoeba, to a parasite, to a mutation of one's biology, we seemed to all work in concert in developing our tactics and we learned from each intervention from the medical world on the outside. We had pirated this host, and now we were in complete control of it. We could see what it saw, hear what it heard, smell and feel, but our voice was slow and unnatural. We looked around. We were shocked to discover we were walking down a practically deserted street. The smell of raw meat was everywhere, but out of sight. There were a few others like us who we recognized from the gait in their step, which was awkward and tottering, just getting used to maneuvering this big, cumbersome bag of meat. Because we were of one mind and one accord, we gravitated to the others like us. As we lumbered along the street, desiring to feed our endless appetite, we heard people screaming ahead of us. Fresh meat, living tissue! Our consortium agreed. We worked tirelessly to get our legs moving faster, but the legs seemed to stumble. There was a feeding down an alley. There was a group of us hovering over bodies, most likely freshly secured. Our newfound senses were a bit overwhelming. Humans were weak and disgusting, mostly made up of water. Yet their senses roared with every scent, and our eyes captured colors in a way we would have never been able to see before. Even with the limitations which we were now learning of, the human experience was a special gift. We could not fly and would drown if submerged for any length of time, but to be human is undefinable. We now controlled arms, legs, but something does not seem natural. Our blood's thickened, our heartbeat is out of rhythm, and the air in our lungs has become dense. We need sustenance before we wither and fade like the leaves every season. Our heart seems to have ceased, but we're still moving. We obviously don't require a heart to exist in this host. Staggering along, we see a larger group of us feeding, so we join them. Other than the craving for human flesh, the rawness and stickiness of it is not appetizing. But we're unable to stop consuming it. The more we stuff down our throats, the greater the cravings intensify. As carriers, we must keep moving in order to contaminate others. Our only goal is not to feed, but to infect. We are ourselves prisoners within the hull. We're trapped inside until we're stopped, or somehow expelled into another host. We're groaning and moaning as we gnaw the flesh from the bones. Shoulder to shoulder, Never aggressive toward one another, we gorge ourselves. Day and night, we move forward, never going back. And the traces of who we were mixed with who we are consummates into who we're going to be. But none of us know the answer to where we're going. What's our destiny? When night fell, our group converged upon an old building with grand front windows To see out in case a human wandered into our area. It appears we'll be desperate for food in the coming days unless we leave this place. Most everyone is evacuated. I'm sure most would not give sentience to our kind. Yet within this human husk, a part of humanity remains. In the following days, we were on the move again until we came to opposition. We were confused, stunned and perplexed as to what to do. The military met us with accelerated force, and in many of our other host bodies, were terminated. Fear did not drive us, yet safeguarding meant our survival. Our host became separated from the many others we'd traveled with, and we found ourselves down by the water's edge. The world seemed to slow, and we stood looking out blurry-eyed across the gentle waters clouds had forced themselves in, and I believe this was the first time we looked at the sky. I heard a human voice. Parker, is that you? Parker? It was an unaffected man, keeping his distance from us. I tilted my head, but my eyes didn't become any clearer. I never knew the host's name, so maybe we were called Parker. Did they get to you, buddy? Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. The man sincerely said as he carefully took a step back. Instinctually, I moved forward. He looked tasty, and since our dispersal at the hands of the military, I had not fed. Parker, you stay right there, man. I don't want to be the one who does it, you know, cut you down. Just wait, the man nervously ordered. We were unable to speak to him. Our language skills only made grunting sounds with guttural moans. He seemed heartless. And if he ran, we knew we would not be able to catch him, so we tried to outthink him. If we sat without threat, maybe we could lure him in close enough to snatch up. So, we sat on a fallen tree and acted as though we had no interest in him. Parker, do you recognize me at all? We used to work together. Surely there is some shred of humanity left in you. My name's Evan. You remember your good old buddy Evan, don't you? We looked out across the water. That is, are you trying to remember? That's good. Remember who you really are, and we can you some help, the man pleaded. Unsure of human interaction, we remained seated. We thought that was the most innocuous position to be in. The man took a couple of steps closer, but not close enough to launch myself in a short burst toward him. We heard a noise behind us. We stood to address it. There was another man standing there. He held a chopping axe in his hand. The third man appeared, and he carried a baseball bat. We determined it was a trap. You stupid, mindless idiot. You're not Parker. I don't even know a Parker. Evan laughed. They're all the same, the second man said. We turned back to look at Parker, who cackled crazily as he had just played the best practical joke ever. Within that moment, we felt a mighty crash to the back of our skull, and we fell forward, smashing face-flat into the muddy bank of the river. There were kicks, brutal blows of the baseball bat, jeers, laughter, and heckling, and then someone stomped on our spine, breaking it in half. We opened our eyes and saw the queerest thing. It was something familiar, but we were unable to recall how we were acquainted with it. The small sand ant was busy carrying something tiny in its powerful jaws. We thought, how incredible would it be to be an ant? hope you enjoyed Zombie by Dale Thompson as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that tale and would love to read more from tonight's very talented feature author, you can help support him by visiting scarypodcast.com slash Thompson. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N. Be sure to check for his numerous tales in prior episodes of this show, and also be sure to see more of him on his YouTube channel. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. How the mighty rise from humble beginnings, and go right back on back. Like Icarus, our little friend, flew just a little too close to the sun. But I don't think Icarus was known for reading everyone he knew on the way back down.
3: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air?
0: For years, and I really like it. With CheapoAir, Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over
1: the
2: phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points.
1: Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air.
2: Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit
0: CheapoAir.com slash podcast. War is hell. Everyone knows it. Everyone says it. But sometimes it's hard to tell when war ends and when the hell part truly begins. Maybe the soldiers in this tale will figure it out before it's too late for any of them. Without further ado, I present to you No Man's Land. This was not the first time Robert had found himself in the infernal trenches. He figured he'd never be the lucky one to get a free ride from the blood and gore of the front and be sent home. Being afraid was easy for her. If you were fearless, you were probably dead. Every gung-ho teenager that ever charged the enemy was either dead, wounded, or rolled up into a ball in this hellhole, sucking his thumb. Robert had never been brave. From day one of his tour of duty, he shook in his bones with dread. He'd experienced war up close and personal. He'd seen the whites of the eyes of the enemy as terrified as he was. And he'd also witnessed his share of death out of this godforsaken battlefield. There's nothing glamorous or romantic about fighting, and certainly it was not poetic. War was hell. It was ugly, but merciless precision. It took aim, and in one swoop, if you were near it, latched on and dragged you into its violence and hostility. Everywhere he looked, war and the remnants of war surrounded him. The casualties of war were mostly young, Robert's age, and he knew most of them by name. The unit became a tight-knit group of soldiers when the shelling started. Robert looked older than he was. War'll do that to you. Age you. Harden you. Cripple you. He turned 21 just a week prior. He celebrated his birthday with bullets flying by his head, a sulfurous smoke of gunpowder filling his nose and practically going deaf because of the concussions of the shelling. His birthday was the day of the largest battle when the enemy had made a huge push. It was also the day Jim got killed. Robert saw Jim fall and prayed. No, not Jim. He cried out, but no guardian angel intervened. Jim meant a lot to Robert. They attended the same high school together, played on the school's varsity basketball team. The two of them had shared a lot of memories, and had become even closer, serving together from boot camp up to Robert's 21st birthday when Jim lost his life. Robert didn't know how he felt about returning home without his friend. The survivor's guilt already ate at him feverishly. The likelihood of any of these young men returning home was low, but no one talked about it or admitted it to anyone, even themselves. What was keeping morale stable was the dreams of home and the absence of war. There were no promises of tomorrow or reinforcements. It was just the moment they were trying to survive. Potentially, he could be shot by a sniper or succumb to the frequent nerve gas attacks. could get called up for a recon mission or to rescue another soldier who was alive but trapped out in no man's land. This was the disputed land between Robert's forces and the enemies, and was policed heavily by both sides. It was truly the killing fields. Chances of navigating it with deep crater-like holes from bombardments that were filled with sludge and water were zero. It was nothing less than quicksand spots. The thick, black, sticky mire had a grip, and once it locked in on a person, it would slowly sink, being consumed and sucked down into this heavy, muddy gunk to disappear in and die in suffocating fashion or drown. The terrain in no man's land had been shredded and torn to bits by the ravages of battle. The vegetation, grass, and trees had all been destroyed. Other than the muddy bogs, any man stranded out there would have to navigate a network of barbed wire, landmines, and artillery fire. If a person found themselves alone out there, they were terrifyingly alone. There was always an expectation the enemy might attempt to overrun the established position where Robert's unit had dug in. They could attempt this in a number of ways, more than likely, but it would be a full-out charge by the enemy. Tanks would find it difficult to manage the mud, but it wasn't an impossible proposition. Robert didn't want to be a hero or a casualty. He just wanted to survive the war. He wanted to be more than a set of dog tags sent home to his parents. Between the noise of gunfire, trench foot, the cold, the rain, the lice and everything he wore and the potato water they called coffee. What was most disturbing were the screams. This was an alien landscape to Robert. It was no different being on another planet because this was about as foreign to him as it got. He'd been done his most to acclimate to the conditions, but daily things would change. So routines, activities, the way engaged the enemy would have to be altered one either kept up or fell behind. Anyone not paying attention would soon be dead. Survival was as much instinctual as it was applying what they'd been taught in their weeks of training and preparation, but nothing could prepare for this magnitude of horror. Robert was huddled in the trench next to Tony and Stephen, had a small fire burning, and were attempting to thaw out. Night was falling. And it was one of the most dangerous times because there was a clear sky, flecked with stars and a bright moon, which acted as a spotlight on their position. The reminder of keep your heads down echoed throughout the unit. Any man foolish enough to raise up and show his head to the enemy was going to lose it. It was freezing, Stephen said, stating the obvious. Yeah, no lie there. I think I'd rather be fighting than sitting, Tony added. Uh, not me,' Robert said. "'I'd rather be on a beach in the sun in Florida.' "'Yeah, too much sun's not good for you,' reminded Tony. Bacon's not good for you, but I love it,' Robert said. "'They say cigarettes will kill you,' Stephen said as he lit one up. "'My grandfather smoked ever since he was eight years old, "'and he's still alive today at the ripe old age of 92,' Robert boasted. "'Must be good genes.' Tony fanned the smoke from the cigarette from his face. I know something which will shorten your life even more than all of that, said Tony. Yeah, what would it be? Robert slipped his gloves on after warming his hands. <laughs> War, laughed Tony. You're lying. You ain't lying there. Robert leaned back against the mud wall. I don't see any of us getting out of the trenches this time, Stephen remarked gloomily. Remind me not to use you as a motivational speaker, Robert laughed. Think about it, does any of this even seem real? How many times do we have to repeat the same old scenario? Stephen wasn't laughing. I don't know about you, but I'm going to win this war, find myself a girl, get married, have some babies. Those babies are going to grow up and give me some grandkids, Robert announced. Well, I wish you the best. Remember me when you come into your kingdom, Stephen seemed to be reflecting. There's your dreams, gents, because one day it might be all we can remember. I blame our fathers, Tony said, becoming morose and sullen. Robert inquired, why would he say such a thing? We wouldn't even be here in this eroded, desolate kill zone. If our fathers would have made peace in the past. Tony looked down into the ditch. One of the most terrifying, heart-wrenching things to be heard while in the trenches is someone shouting, "Incoming!" Explosion blinded the three men seconds after the alarm sounded. The enemy was carrying out a very dangerous nighttime assault, which proved how desperate they'd become. Robert expected wave after wave of the enemy crossing no man's land, firing their rifles indiscriminately. Robert roared away from the fire, forgetting the painfully cold weather conditions. His eyesight came back after the flash from the explosion. and He saw the panic in the trench. The gunfire was distressing in every sense. He'd lost sight of Stephen and Tony. He assumed they made a break the other way. Robert was surrounded by thunderclaps. Blasts which tore chunks out of the trench walls. The earth shook, rumbled, quaked. Robert steadied himself, gripped his rifle tight, and raced through the trench toward what he imagined was the most ferocious combat. He wasn't brave. Matter of fact, he was petrified. But survival instincts in his training told himself preservation was by facing the enemy, not from running from them. He stepped over two of his own soldiers, who'd taken a direct hit from what appeared to be a grenade blast. A volley of fire ensued, bullets swinging through the air, hissing as they nearly hit their targets. A thud of on-target kills. A very distinct and sharp cry was heard above all of the mayhem and noise. It was a man's voice shrieking in agony. Robert drew a long breath to gather a better perspective. That's when he felt someone touch his shoulder. He swung around, prepared for a hand-to-hand combat situation. There was no one there. He felt a sense of absence as he had forgotten something. A flash of light lit up the battle, as if the sun had redirected all of its light upon the battleground. A piercing ringing went cleanly through Robert's ears, causing complete deafness. He felt the shockwave of the blast. It smacked him hard into the muddy trench face down. Stunned, having lost some of his senses and all of his bearings, he crawled like a wounded animal through the sloppy, cold cesspool. Using muscle memory and reflex, he resorted to his primordial behavior and made it to his feet. Growling with rage, he sought the enemy. He was now running, hurtling bodies, which littered the trench. He then realized either he was stone deaf or no one was shooting guns. Paused in his tracks. There was no battle, no explosions, no screams, no enemy to be seen or heard. This eerie quiet was more troubling than the battle itself. Robert couldn't make sense of this. What was happening? Dead bodies were strewn about, but he saw no living soul. Robert hunkered down low and waited. Sometimes the enemy would unleash a barrage, then suddenly cease fire hoping someone on the opposing side was foolish enough to raise their head into the kill line. Robert had seen this tactic before. It was a lure, so one's guard was dropped. For the next two hours, he didn't move while half-buried, pretending to be a corpse heavily layered with cold mud. There came a time when he just had to release himself from the trench. Stiff, aching cold and in fear that hypothermia was setting in. Once to his feet, he pressed his body against the trench wall and slid carefully along it until he reached the barracks, bypassing the radio room, which had been completely obliterated. Now things seemed to be stirring anywhere outside. Quickly, changing clothes into dry and warmer fittings, he found another pair of boots in his sides and a fresh pair of socks. He felt like a new man. He double checked his ammunition and added two more grenades to his liberty belt. Once he was geared up again, he returned to the trenches. It was deathly quiet. He saw someone, white, in the trench next to the body of a soldier he didn't know. Reaching down, he pulled this new find out of the mud. He recognized it right away as a femur bone. He dropped it in disgust. He couldn't comprehend this at all. How would a femur bone, stripped of flesh, be buried in a trench? He wondered if the unusual deafening explosion had actually stripped flesh from bone. He heard the slushing of someone coming, in his direction, from just around the bend in the trench. Robert dropped to one knee and took aim with his rifle. The person rounded the bend, and as Robert started to squeeze the trigger, he recognized the soldier to be Tony. Oh, brother, I'm glad to see you, Tony said. Robert met him, and the two men patted one another on the shoulder. Have you seen Stephen? Robert asked. Yes, he took up a position further down the trench behind me. Tony said, Do you have any idea what has happened? Robert inquired. Not a clue. Everyone appears to have died in the flash explosion, except the three of us. We found something you need to see. Tony then led Robert to Stephen's position. Stephen had a look of relief seeing someone else was alive. Take a look at this. He showed Robert a small pile of clean, white human bones they'd collected. I found the same thing, Robert shared. Weird. Tony grimaced. These are not fresh bones. These are buried bones, not shattered bones, Robert said. As they examined them, the three men were overwhelmed without explanation. They refused to speculate about their find, and even more pressing was what to do next. They didn't know if the enemy had been decimated or if they were regrouping for another devastating attack. This was confronting horror on an unimaginable scale. They didn't know what sort of atrocities to expect if they left the trench. Would there be more shocking? unexplainable images, it didn't matter. They had to move. Climbing up the trench wall, they had a better view of no man's land before them. Incalculable bodies from both sides speckled the landscape with splatters and pools of blood mingled in the soil. It was literally a cemetery of unburied mangled bodies. What could have caused this, Tony asked, not expecting an answer. This was an indiscriminate slaughter. Whoever unleashed the weapon didn't care who died, Robert assumed. Experimental? Had to be a test of some sort. Think about it. How long have we been out here without relief? It became disposable, Stephen swore. Possibly, but if it is so, then whose side are we on? Robert posed. They'd remembered a briefing just two days prior from their commander, informing the men to memorize where suspected landmines had been planted from both sides. Robert made a mental note of this, knowing how unpredictable each day was, and assuming one day he might have to cross his deadly piece of real estate. Tony spun around, completely startled. Did you hear that? The men dropped to one knee and raised their rifles. I didn't hear a thing. What was it? Stephen nervously asked. It was a whisper, as if it was someone standing right in the rip beside me. Tony answered. I didn't hear it, Robert admitted. Neither did I, Stephen concurred. You still hear it? asked Robert. No, it's, it's gone quiet. Tony strained to hear. Come on, don't let your imagination get away from you. Robert warned. Knowing this promised to be an excursion fraught with unexpected danger, the three made their way into no man's land and passed the first coiled barbed wire. To the left and to the right were impacted craters, deep holes, pock marks, and scarring upon the land. The dead, who'd taken cover during the battle, suffered sorely, laying bloated, dismembered, and shot to pieces. The three men determined There were no obvious signs of life. Nobody to rescue. No one left to save. Look here, Tony pointed out. He retrieved a radio from one of his own men. Must have been a communications guy, he said. Does it still work? Communications head was completely wrecked, Robert said, without going into detail. Tony turned the radio on and it was charged up and operational. He called into the radio. Mayday, mayday, can anyone hear me? There was static, gurgling, and in response. But it wasn't in English or German. The language was entirely foreign to them. It rattled off a couple of phrases, leaving the three men scratching their heads. English! Tony shouted into the radio. Again, there was this alien garble, which no one could understand. What do you make of that? asked Stephen, looking at Robert. It's not a language I've ever heard. Forget it. Let's, let's keep moving, Robert said. Tony held up his hand. Stop. No one took another step. This time, all three men heard a faint whimper. It was coming from one of the holes in the ground. Going to the edge, they looked down, and there was a living soldier from their unit lying torn to shreds but breathing. Robert was the first to slide into the hole to aid the nearly dead guy. You're alive, soldier. Hold on. Robert said as he dug into his bag and found morphine. The soldier stopped him and said, Listen, save it for yourself. You might need it. I saw something before the explosion. Right before the flash of light, I saw people rise up from these sludge pits. They crawled out broken, twisted, grotesquely deformed, but were walking upright. They were not human. The explosion killed us all, but it's raised the dam. Ah, he's still there. He's out of his mind, commented Tony. No, I know what I'm saying. I know what I saw. The man's voice trailed off weakly, and they watched him take his last breath. Leaving the deceased soldier, the three carried on with the man's last words playing out in their heads. After they'd advanced another 25 yards, they came to a pile whitewashed bones that looked as though they'd been bleached in the desert sun. Robert picked through the bones and said, There are at least eight skulls here, plenty of loose teeth, too. I don't get this. Is it a warning or something? Tony asked. Stephen was examining a nearby body. What do you see? Robert asked. His throat's been ripped out. This was not from an explosion. It looks like an animal. Stephen said. Animal? Robert sounded perplexed. Or a human, Tony hypothesized. If I wasn't afraid before, I am now, Robert said. Their radio blasted out a voice, causing all three men to jump. It was more of the unrecognizable language followed by static and crackles. Someone's trying to reach us, Robert said. Or find us. Tony sounded worried. we are not alone, boys. Robert's fear was engendered by not only the voice and the radio, but the unusual stack of bones. Such encounters were leaving the men with a sickening, churning upheaval. These visceral stirrings were felt by all three men in their deepest extremities. What are we dealing with? Robert looked around in every direction, becoming more paranoid by the second. I'm not afraid of monsters, but I'm terrified of evil men, Robert said. What if something evil, more evil than what we've known, has been birthed out here? What if this secret weapon woke up hell, Tony suggested. Robert stressed, don't be ridiculous. Whoever's doing this is trying to place fresh fears in us. Continuing forward, avoiding the barbed wire barriers and landmines, the three noticed the unavoidable acrid stench which had become ever-present. With no alternative, they stayed on the path which should have been danger-free. Body after body had not just been killed. But the bodies had been viciously ripped to shreds, as if they'd been hit with an unattainable amount of shrapnel. As they made their way to the ridge got their first looks over into the next half of the wastelands, they staggered at the sight. At the bottom of the hill was a line of ten wild-eyed inhuman creatures. The odor of corruption was more potent than before. The creature's backs were the three men. They were hunched over in a feeding frenzy. Their backs were hairy but spiny. They didn't have any apparel on at all. They resembled something like werewolves from horror books Robert had read in his youth. Should we take them out? Tony asked they don't know we're here, maybe we should not draw any attention to ourselves. If we give up our position, there might be more of those things, Robert said. Too late, Robert said as one of the hideous creatures turned and spotted the three men. Impulsively, Tony raised his rifle and began to unload it on the creatures. This obligated the others to do the same. And within just seconds, the three men had massacred the creatures without a real fight. A closer inspection of the creatures revealed they were wolves. Wolves? They look like wolves from up there, Tony said. I'd heard rumors that the Germans trained and unleashed wolves to hunt down Allied troops. I thought it was a folktale or some sort of occult. Rubbish, Robert said. These wolves are not what I shot at from the hill. I swear what I unloaded on was not a normal wolf. I'm standing like a human does, Tony swore. Could have been shadows, the moon, the angle we're on. Robert tried to debunk the werewolf's suggestion. I'm not saying wolf men, but I swear I know what I saw. Tony was paralyzed with fear. Holy mother of pearl. Stephen pointed to the hill where they'd just descended from men turned, and their jaws dropped in open disbelief. What is it? Robert squinted, believing his eyes were deceiving him. On the hill, glaring down at them, were what could only be disguised as cultish, otherworldly monsters moving awkwardly with an uncommon sway. Unbelievable. Tony moaned. How many? Robert asked, unsure if his eyes were seen Thirty at least, Stephen said. Take up positions. These things are tracking, as Robert said. I don't see any rifles, possibly bayonets, Tony informed the men. If they charge us, don't waste any ammo, reminded Robert. Stay mentally fit, boys, he added. The humanoid creatures began jumping up and down, bouncing in place, making strange and queer noises. Complicated, harsh sounds were like, Rating war cries before battle. Next came the assault, which followed uh, threatening screams. The air was splintered with commotion. Get close, boys, Robert yelled, ready to engage, waiting for the impact. The explosion rocked the three men backward. The unexpected blast caught them totally unaware. At first, they'd believed they were attacked from the rear, but that theory made no sense. It seemed, when these strange humanoid creatures charged the men, they strayed off the safer path, therefore stepping on more than one landmine, blowing them to pieces. only two of these gnarly creatures remained alive, and they were making tortuous sounds as their pain was apparent. Robert moved closer to gain a better look. The creatures resisted and attempted to crawl away, but their pain seemed too intense. Two remaining creatures were uncommunicative. They made no attempts to ask for help or to acknowledge the three soldiers. What are you? Tony asked. Creatures which resembled a cross between the decayed dead and something cave-like snarled viciously. These things can't understand us, Tony said. We should put them out of their misery, Stephen suggested. The radio on Robert's hip burst with noise voice over the radio said let them go Robert pulled the radio from his belt and answered who is this? let them go the decrepit voice repeated what should we do? asked Tony they obviously can see us we may not have a choice at least we didn't kill the foul things they blew themselves up this is why we're being given a chance Robert conjectured creed. Let's just back away and keep moving, Stephen suggested. The three walked away from the creatures, looking back to make sure they weren't being followed. What Robert saw next was beyond imagination. From the ground rose these transparent, pale, white, ghostly images, hovering and floating like waving bedsheets on the linen. Robert counted four of them. They swept up the dead, the two wounded creatures where they lay as if floating them in the air they carried them the thirty or so up over the hill out of sight. Well, what was that? Robert asked unbelievable to his own eyes of what he was seeing. I didn't see a thing. What are you see? Stephen asked. I can't be certain what to make of any of this. I'm having a hard time reconciling these reasons are either locked into the same dream, dying somewhere out there with them and having out-of-body experiences. Or are we dead? This could be hell. I saw ghosts, Robert asserted. Hell. I don't even believe in hell, Stephen said. You're kidding, right? Tony resounded spuriously. The Hell I've ever known is when I volunteered for the army and ever since then, every day, has been torture and suffering, answered Stephen. I can't disagree. I've been right there with you, brother. There's no other way to explain what's happening to us, Robert said. Do you believe we're dead? Robert asked, point blank. This is all wrong. I can't wrap my head around any of it. Look at the moon, for an example. Has either of you noticed it's in a fixed position in the sky and hasn't moved in the sky? The three you looked up. I didn't really notice, but if this were hell. Wouldn't we be attacked by demons? Those creatures are not my definitions of demons, Tony said. They can't go along with the demon thing, either. The ancient demons of old are gone. They just moved from one page of folktales to the other until they moved off the page and were written out of existence, Stephen said. It appears you've given it a bit of thought, said Robert as he began walking again. Strictly speaking, hell demons, God, just are impossibilities. There's no proof, Stephen said. So, we're here right now, experiencing this otherworldly evil and you're in denial. What would you call this, then? Tony wanted to know. Well, it's not purgatory, either. They say we're going through something paranormal as an invention defined by other things I don't believe exist. It's basically "'inventing a realm of non-existence,' Stephen answered. "'Makes no sense,' Tony said with an air of disdain for such thinking. "'Tony and Robert would have sworn that Stephen fell before anyone heard the rifle bang. "'Stephen was killed right there, right then. "'There was nothing either Robert or Tony could do to save him. "'The bullet went through the back of his head and came out through his throat, "'dropping his lifeless body without remorse.' The other two soldiers took up concealed positions, not able to digest what had happened. Where'd it come from? Robert asked. I can't see a thing. There's no one there, Tony said as he scanned the blackened landscape. Whispers filled the air. A thousand voices out of sync whispering and hissing, disturbing the air and moving the fetid stench of death like an impenetrable, allotorous wall. But no apparent aim at all. Tony launched a grenade out into the open land, and the explosion produced no results. The whispers and hissing continued. Whatever you were trying didn't work, Robert said as his ears The Faceless voices carried on with their tormenting, serpentine language. This whole time, Robert had been looking out over the land for any movement, hoping to find the shooter. There, Robert said, patiently, unhurried, And, observant, he fired a single shot of his rifle at what he had saw move. Did you get him? Tony asked. I got the middle one. There were three. I'm not sure where the other two went. Robert and Tony moved in his direction, That he dropped the target. Taking their time with eyes wide open, the two moved into the area where Robert had dropped the man. They were not expecting what they came across lying on his side with Stephen, shot straight through the back of his head. Robert dropped to his knees inconsolable. Words couldn't attain to describe his grief. They're messing with us, Robert. You didn't do this, Tony pleaded. The events since the flash bomb had taken their toll on Robert. He couldn't separate the two events of Stephen's death. In his mind, he had already incarcerated himself behind an impenetrable walls of guilt. The great enmity was growing in his head like a dark influence. Help's coming, said Tony, as he held Robert's collapsed body in his arms. The overhead light was incredibly bright, and when Robert awoke at first, he couldn't see past the glare. Soon, behind the glare was a team of doctors. and the light was pushed to the side, it was met with a smiling face, pleasant and notably wise-looking. I'm Dr. Matthews gone through quite an ordeal. "'We barely got to you in time. "'I see by your chart you're a war veteran "'and you've seen a lot of combat. I'm "'Grateful for your service,' the doctor remarked. "'What happened?' was all Robert could utter. "'This is when he felt his wounds, his injuries, "'and he heard the machines, which he was connected to. "'Your throat will feel like sandpaper for a while. "'You were intubated for a couple of weeks.' lucky man, but you made the turn now, and you're out of the woods. The doctor sounded optimistic. Robert wanted to know what happened. You suffered a fall. I doubt if you'll remember it, because you suffered some brain bleeding. What's the last thing you remember, the doctor asked. I remember being on the battlefield, lost in some blackened wasteland, shooting one of my own men by accident really sure if it happened or not because I watched him die before I accidentally mistook him for the enemy Robert said drawing unclear pictures from his broken memory Robert how old were you when you fought in the war asked the doctor I was 21 I just turned 21. I'm still 21 Robert said confusedly the doctor put his head down inside what is it doc Robert the war was long. Long, long time ago. You've been suffering from memory loss even before you took a fall a couple of weeks ago. Robert, you're 81 years old. Your grandson and his wife brought you to the hospital when you fell at their house. Do you have any memory of the past 60 years? I hope you enjoyed No Man's Land by Dale Thompson as performed by yours truly. If you've enjoyed what you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured authors can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Thompson. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N. YouTube's where you'll find most of what keeps him busy most days but be sure to go back to our extensive audio archives if you'd like to hear more of his thrilling output. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me on this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, Please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcast, and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and it would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll be finding yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, or X... Instagram or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases, and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well, at the Oldest Gyrie channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, slash X, and Instagram too. Just search for Otis Gyrie. Stay tuned as this season is just getting started and heading to the Midway. And until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark